Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. This also is God's holy word. Begin reading from verse 1 of chapter 5 through verse 16. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your people. You've called us to be children of light. And Father, the, the call to walk worthy of the, of the good news of the gospel is a reminder to us that we must leave the darkness behind, that you have called us into the light. And Father, we pray that we would delight in the light who is Jesus. Father, we pray that you would remind us that... Um, that there is no having it both, that either we will be loved by the world at its own or hated by the world because we are the light. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit's guidance in the lives of your people, that we might understand what it means to be the light. Father, we pray that we would not be afraid to live even as you have called us to live, that we would live upright, godly lives, that it would be our first and foremost, our testimony before this world of the Lord that we worship, our Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that the good news of the gospel would go forward even this day, that you would remind us of the hope that we have, that our Lord Jesus is our hope for forgiveness, and that in him we have new life. We pray, Father, that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> it was years ago. I remember taking a flight uh, on an Asian airline. I was going to the Far East. And I, and I watched as a man started to make a scene and a fuss on the airplane. And I wondered 
how exactly is this going to be handled? Because the steward, uh, this man who was very lean, I could tell he probably was some kind of super black belt in Taekwondo. And would he step in there and deal with this guy? No, they didn't do that. Apparently, they're following their airline regulations. What I watched was the stewardess asked the person sitting next to him to vacate their seat. They gave him a better seat. And, and then she sat next to this man. And what they had her do was she sat there and folded her hands. And basically, what I, what I witnessed was that the airline said, hey, this guy's misbehaving. Well, have someone who is a paid staff sit next to him and be a model to him of what he should be doing. So she sat there, sipped her, sipped her tea, and, and, and then after a while I realized the guy started to feel ashamed, as in, do I, do I need this person who's a paid staff to, to come out from doing her job so that she can sit next to me and make me look like a fool and I would stop doing what I'm doing and I would copy her? And he started behaving. And I realized, well, wait a minute. They didn't get this principle, they didn't make up this principle in the airline industry. This principle we have in the Word of God. We see even in today's passage, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Essentially, this lady was exposing this man. Hey, listen, you're acting like a fool. Stop acting like a five-year-old. And sit here, fold your hands, sip your tea, and behave. And so also, you understand that your primary witness as a Christian is not you going around everywhere telling everyone how evil they are, how sinful they are. Your first and foremost role as a Christian is that you ought to be the light in how you live. And the things that you say, the things that you do, that you ought to be that contrast to the world. When the world says, hey, we, we love our sin, our sin is just so satisfying. Though they're lying, they're deceiving themselves. That you, you tell them, and then you live otherwise. True satisfaction is found in living and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is true life. This is true satisfaction. Here we think about this book of Ephesians. And we've made this transition from the, the theory, the theology of, of Ephesians 1 through 3. We've transitioned to the practice, but I hope you can see that we are unable to depart from the theology. That it keeps coming back. We keep returning to it. That this book of Ephesians presents our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That he indeed is a savior. And he calls his beloved bride, the church, to follow him, to worship him. That Christ has called us to a new and a better life in him. That he calls us to be children of light. So that the passage that we have today, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. We see this truth. As children of light, your life must contrast with and expose the darkness. For Jesus is the light. As children of light, your life must contrast with and expose the darkness, for Jesus is the light. We'll look at this in two points. The first is the children of light expose the darkness. And the second point, the marvelous light of Christ. So the first point, the children of light expose the darkness. We have this in verses 11 through the first half of verse 14. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible 
is light. Here we have in this Ephesians chapter 5 that the Apostle Paul begins with the call to be imitators of God. And we ask, why should we imitate God? And the reason why is because you are beloved, that you are dearly loved children. The reason why we imitate our Father is that he dearly loves us. And this call to walk in love, it's not just, hey, figure out what love is. Uh, you, you need to define it and you need to model it. No, we have in Jesus Christ. We have one who has loved us and gave himself up for us. And because of that, the apostle can say, walk in love, because our Lord Jesus is the one who has loved us. Here we have warnings about the previous life, the common life, the worldly life, in verses 3 through 6. The warnings are that immorality or impurity are improper for the saints, that they ought not even be named among God's people. Not only the living out of the immorality and impurity, but the filthy talk and the crude joking, and instead that there ought to be the giving of thanks. The warning that he gives about that is that those who are immoral have no inheritance in Christ's kingdom. And the second warning that God's wrath remains on the immoral and that those who are partners with them will also be partners with their destruction and their judgment. Perhaps we can look at it another way. In verse 8, it speaks about walking as children of light, that that's the cause. And then we have the resulting effect is take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So as living as children of light, eventually that there will be this interface with the world and what you'll see will be the contrast. We have also in this passage a description about diminishing restrictions. In verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. But this is a higher level. You think about being partners with someone in the world. The question that the Apostle Paul asks in 2 Corinthians is, what partnership does light have with darkness? What partnership does righteousness have with wickedness? Here, the idea is do not be partners or partakers with them. And what goes along with it is, and thus do not be partners with them in their judgment by God's wrath. The diminishing restriction then is that in verse 11, so not being partners with them in their activities, in their common loves, in verse 11 is do not participate or take part in their unfruitful works. Here we ought to understand that um, partnering with someone is a great deal. And then participating with them is the difference between spending your whole life with them or spending you know, a day or an afternoon with them. Here we see some key concepts about light and the interface with darkness. There in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Is that light is a contrast to the darkness. Light is a contrast to the darkness. And it comes from take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. As light in the Lord, you are called to be a contrast in your works. Rather than immorality and impurity, there ought to be righteousness, truth, and purity. That the Lord has called you to a far better life in Jesus Christ. God's design for Israel 
You remember when you look at the book of even early in Genesis, the descendants of Noah, the sons of Ham. We remember Noah had three sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we remember the bad son because uh, the mnemonic of Ham being pork and pork being for the Jews bad. So Ham was the father of Canaan. And after Ham sinned against Noah by exposing the nakedness of his father, that he had said, curse be Canaan. And the Lord promised that, hey, I'm going to wait for these Canaanites because their sin has not reached their fulfillment. We, we have a, a bit of an understanding of how patient, how long-suffering God is when he says, hey, listen, it's not time yet, that their sins are there. They have been there. But he's saying that, hey, there will come a time when he will eject them from the land, that, that they will be, they will be uh, given over. And when, when God promised Israel, he had said, I'm going to bring you into this land, vineyards you did not plant, houses you did not build. But he warns them, if you follow that same pattern of their living, he says, I also will spit you out. I also will eject you from the land. Instead, God called Israel that they were to be a light to the nations, even as the church is called today to be a light to the nations. Here, we think about what your, your role is as a Christian. Our role is not to be busybodies in this world. Our role constantly should be to live an upright and a godly life. That when others see us, there ought to be an exemplary life for you. That when you say you worship Jesus Christ, it's not merely something you do on the Lord's day or, or the Lord's two hours in the morning. It's something that you live. Because you have a new life in Jesus Christ. Everything about you uh, ought, to, ought to be reflecting Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this is first and foremost what we ought to be in Jesus Christ, his beloved children, children of light. Now, we have in verse 12 this warning, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And Matthew Henry gives some warnings about what this means. Not partaking of the fruits, uh, unfruitful works of darkness and not even speaking about the things that they do in secret. Here he mentions four C's. And it begins with commendation. So what is it that you speak well or highly of? And is it the things of this world and their values? This commendation begins with your heart desires. And I warn you that if you have children, they will have a much better understanding of what you commend than you do. You might say, no, 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 I, I, commend, I commend these high, lofty things. And you talk to your children, you'll find out what it is that, that you commend because they will pick up on it. So commendation. Second thing is counsel. How do you counsel others? And from whom do you seek counsel? And when you receive counsel, what counsel will you follow? Think about a simple example. This having, having or taking no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. You think about the example of David's, David's children. So after David 
committed adultery and murder, God promised that the sword would never depart from his home. And then you have this son Amnon, that he had lustful desires for his half-sister. And then he, he's ill, and his friend Jonadab sees him. He says, hey, son of the king, why are, you, why are you ill? And he explains to him that he has desires for his half-sister. right? And Jonadab could have said any number of things. Hey, buddy, you're the, you're the king's son. Why, why, why do you desire your half-sister? You should desire any of these other uh, uh, virgin maids that you could have. They would, they would love to be with you. Hey, how about so-and-so? She seems like a, a great... Christ-loving gal, right? You, you should, hey, turn away from your sister. You think about someone else that you ought to have. Uh, he could have rebuked him. Hey, buddy, what are you doing? This is incest. You, you're, you're acting like a fool. He, he should have said what his sister said to him. But instead, he gives him guidance on how to carry out his plan. This was, this was evil. We see also the matter of the sea of consent. Consent, meaning approval, or acceptance. Here, it's often what we end up giving into. So consent. People press on us for various things. To what will you concede when others press on you? You learn about what are those values that you have. And the fourth is concealment. Are you willing to conceal for others their pet sins? Here we think about what it means to be a snitch. That no one likes snitches, but there's a difference between volunteering information to get someone in trouble and some lawful authority. A parent is obviously a lawful authority. When an employer, when a boss comes to you, hey, your coworker, he's normally here. What happened to him? And if you lie on behalf of, of, of your coworker to cover some sin or some incompetence or, or, or uh, negligence, right? This, this is, this is the, the sea of concealment. Right? A lawful authority is, is an employer, a boss. Right? We cannot lie to such, to such a person that speaking the truth is required. That these are some of the ways that we participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. So the light is a contrast that you and your life ought to be a contrast with the darkness. Light also exposes the darkness in the second half of verse 11, but instead expose them. Other versions address the matter as light reproves the darkness. We'll get back to that thought in a moment. But here we address that the very existence of a believer is a reproof of unbelief. The very existence of a forthright, honest man or honest woman is a rebuke of swindlers and liars and oath breakers. The fact that you tell the truth when you're required to and all the time. The very existence of godly people is a reprimand of wickedness. So here we, we think about this exposure. What does it mean for light to expose the darkness? Think about early on. Genesis chapter 4, we have the sons of Adam and Eve, <clears throat> Cain and Abel. We're told that Cain presented an offering from the field. And there's nothing about being from the field or being from the flock. It was the quality 
of those sacrifices. It was the quality of those offerings. So apparently Cain brought in inferior. He, he didn't bring the best. He didn't bring the first fruits. He didn't bring the best fruits of the land. And Abel, who was a keeper of flocks, that he brought a superior offering. And what we're told is that God had regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's. And there was a jealous and envious eye of Cain towards his brother. He ended up killing him. Now, did did the text say that Abel mocked his brother Cain? Did he... Did he ridicule him? We were not told that. What we're told is he did the right thing and there was a contrast because of it. We see the effect of this exposure, living the right way in Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This is a reminder to us that our Lord Jesus is light. And the way, the common way that the world sees the light is that he sees those who are sent into the recesses. You, you think about how uh, there's access that each of you have that I simply will not have. And that everyone who is a follower of Jesus, is called to be that light. Not to be acting like the light, but the fact that you are the light. And you see the the response of darkness. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Simply put, they love, they love sin. They, they love darkness, and they want nothing to do with the light. light. Light exposes them. Darkness hates the light. We read earlier from the confession of faith in chapter 5 about providence, that God uses means either to harden or to soften others. And on one hand, we're told that God uses certain means to soften people, even save them, meaning a godly witness, a godly exposure, such a one who lives the upright lifestyle who speaks about his hope in Christ. You know what? I have such a struggle with this. And, and here was this, this man in my workplace, in my neighborhood, who told me about his hope in Jesus Christ. And yet, in other situations, we have people who see this godly example and they despise it. Light also makes things visible. There in verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. The light of Christ exposes sin for what it is. Darkness, foolishness. In Psalm 36, verse 9, the simple statement. In your light, we see light. In God's light, we're able to see light. We begin to appreciate what is good and holy and righteous. It is only by God's light that sinners learn to discern good from evil. There in Psalm 119, 105, your words a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Children, I ask you the simple question. What happens if someone 
walks in the darkness and has no light. The end result is that they will stumble and fall. Is that wisdom? Is that wisdom to say, hey, I'm going to go outside and walk in the dark where no one can see me? It's comfortable for sinners to say, hey, my sins are concealed. But if, if humans, if man can make night vision devices in which they can see in the dark, expensive devices, don't you think God can see right through the darkness? He sees all. There's no way to hide from our God who sees even down to the inner recesses of the heart. Light also brings a new identity in the first half of verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. Anything that becomes visible is light. In John chapter 3, verse 21, but whoever does what is right comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we have the means that God uses to harden certain people and to soften and then to save other people. That the light, is shi- light shines. And that whoever hates the light because they love darkness, they, they go away. They fear the light. They, they run away from the light. But then we're told that whoever does what is true comes to the light. That there's a drawing out. The people who are, are saved are those who realize, hey, I'm in darkness, and I desire, I delight, I delight in the light, who is Jesus Christ. And there comes with it then, with light, a new identity. Jesus is the light whom I love, and I'm going to leave behind the darkness and follow the light. You realize that God has called you in Christ, that you ought to be the light, that you are the light, that the life you live however imperfect it is, that you are a witness of our Lord Jesus Christ, a living witness. God God uses the exposure of the light as as a means by which he claims people as his own. Here, you think about the simple matter of being confronted with underperformance or being confronted with some wrong. For those who are outside of Christ, I don't know what else there would be other than a defensiveness or some attempt to hide, exactly as Adam did. When Adam, after he fell, he heard God walking in the garden and it said that he hid, he hid He hid in the bushes as if God can't see right through the leaves. And you think about being confronted, hey, you know, your performance is is mediocre and we want it to be up here. And you would think that, well, what would be the end result? There would be some kind of defensiveness. And instead, for those of you who are in Jesus Christ, your identity is not ultimately in your performance. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. And you have... All of your sins covered. All of your sins paid for by Jesus Christ. So here we think about not being under the guilt of sin. Not being under the power of sin. That we ought to be willing to hear that it should not, it should not destroy us. 
to hear about it. We should be willing, even as the psalmist says, search me and reveal to me the way everlasting. Here we think about this big question that this text raises, but instead expose them. Is it reprove or is it expose? What is your duty before the darkness? Well, I say it again. There's no question that a godly and an exemplary life is what you are called to first and foremost. At times, a reproof is necessary. It's not only appropriate, but it's necessary. And it takes great wisdom to know the difference. That may we be those who are in prayer often for opportunities to be a witness to others. Give me an example. Mark chapter 6, you have John the baptizer. He publicly, apparently, he apparently publicly reproved Herod and, and Herodias uh, by extension, and he said, it is not right for you to have your brother's wife. Well, what makes it so challenging for us to be willing to address these matters? We see what happened to John the baptizer. He lost his head. His head ended up on a platter. Here, we think about the heart checks we ought to have before we think about reproving others. Perhaps the question, what motivates you to speak the truth to reprove another, especially those who are in the darkness? There's a difference between speaking to a brother, right? You know, the, the scriptures make it very clear. We're supposed to judge those inside. Our primary role is to be concerned about believers, that we're not to call to judge those outside, right? So when we speak to them, it's never to condemn them. It's never to insult them or to ridicule them or worse, to revile them. We're never called to do that. Here we think about our motives. Do we speak to them because you are offended or because God's name and his honor are offended? You look at the example of the young man David in 1 Samuel chapter 17. The occasion was the taunting of this, uh, this giant, uh, a man of warfare in Goliath. David didn't say, hey, listen, you, you insult my, my athletic prowess and how I defeated lions and bears. He didn't say that at all. He says, you've insulted the true and the living God. You taunt us with your gods. So his concern was about the name of God, not about his own name. Here we think also, what will you say to the deeds of darkness? Ultimately, you're not addressing the person, you're addressing the deeds. Are we going to ridicule them? Are we going to destroy them with our words? Have you spoken to God first in prayer regarding wisdom, regarding kindness and compassion? Have we stopped to consider what is your life even? Where would you be outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ? And should we not be thinking, but for the grace of God, there, there go I, meaning, hey, we, we sometimes start to forget why we're different. It's not because of anything good in us. It's actually 
the goodness of our God. If it wasn't for him and his saving grace, we also would be the same. We would be by nature children of wrath. What is your end goal in reproving? Is it to bear witness of your hope in Christ? Or is it to exalt exalt yourself at the expense of others? Here, is it your desire that we would gain a brother or sister? Or is it merely to settle an argument or to show who's right and who's wrong? These are things that should come to us and it should cut us to the heart that when we speak, it should be that others would see the glory of our Lord Jesus, that we should desire that they also would have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We must be very careful how we interact with the world, that they also should be those who desire what is good in Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered? We have a loving community that we call the church. But do you think that those who are in the world also have a community of love? whatever that might be. And what their communities, what their people will tell them is that the church are the most hateful and condemning and the horrible people. They are our enemies. They're the darkness. You realize that that's exactly what they're going to say. Oh, don't go to them. They're the darkness. We're the light. Isaiah 5, where they will call good evil and evil good and darkness light and light darkness. So if... If you're going to be harsh and condemning towards them and and reproving them, it's only going to fulfill, oh, that's right, you're speaking like the darkness because I'm the light. Here we think about what the true light is. The true light is Jesus Christ. He's the one who exposed us. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Are you outside of Jesus Christ? You realize that he offers to us the very best He offers to us eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. He gladly welcomes you. He graciously receives sinners. Are you trusting in him? If you're not, then I I urge you, repent and believe in Jesus Christ because he indeed is your hope for eternal life. So this is the first point. Children of light expose the darkness. We have the second point. The marvelous light of Christ in the second half of verse 14. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here, the question that often comes up is, to what is Paul quoting or alluding? That statement, there, therefore it says, or simply therefore he says, it's, it's, not, it's not distinguished, the it isn't there. It could be he, or it could be it. Some think that Paul is quoting an Old Testament passage. Others think he's quoting an early church hymn. We have other other parts of the New Testament where it seems like there is a quotation of an early church hymn. Most likely here, what we have is a loose, loose paraphrase of the Old Testament from Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's a very similar message there. 
whatever's the case, uh, the key thought is whether he's quoting from the Old Testament or he's writing something new in the New Testament, this is God speaking in his word and that we ought to obey it, that we ought to believe it and we ought to obey it. So three phrases, three commands, or three statements. Awake, O sleeper. Awake, O sleeper. There's a tendency for sinners to fall into spiritual slumber. We look at this in the physical, the physical realm. You look at the U.S., our country, this great military power. But you look back in history, right before World War II, and then between the two great wars, right before World War I, in those, in those particular instances, you look at the U.S. military, very weak, very small, partly is because no immediate threat was seen. They had to build up, uh, they had to build up their, their army. And here we think about how a nation might think, okay, there's no immediate threat. There's no need to, to conscript people. There's no need to spend so much money on, on military armament. And is it the case that you and I are a bit too comfortable in lax in our spiritual disciplines? One of the reformers there in England, Hugh Latimer, he was quoted in saying that Satan is the most diligent bishop in the kingdom. You think about England, they have these bishops, right? Those servants in the church. But he says Satan is far more diligent, all of them. He, he never rests. He doesn't have to sleep. And his work is most dangerous, most insidious when he is ignored. The church of Jesus Christ and every dearly loved child of God is always under attack. And for you to think, I'm completely safe. I can look around. There's no spiritual attacks on me. Satan's saying, oh, rejoice, because you are under attack already. Here, awake, O oh sleeper. You ask yourself, in this new year, this is the 1st of January, people can have all kinds of New Year's resolutions. Just go to the, the local gym, whatever, uh, Planet Fitness, whatever fitness center, and, and if you think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in shape. And you go to the gym, oh, it's going to be busy there for the first two or three weeks, and you just wait and see. You're never going to have to wait in line for that treadmill or that weight machine by February. Because all these people who resolve, I am going to get in shape. By February, they're not going to be there. You think about how important it is. The Apostle Paul addresses to Timothy that physical training is of some benefit, but spiritual discipline is for benefit for eternity. What else can you do? What else should you be doing? Should you be looking for opportunities to be under God's word? Uh, in prayer. That Jesus gave this warning. Matthew 26, 41. He gave this warning to his disciples. Jesus is about to go to the cross. Garden of Gethsemane. 
He tells his disciples, hey, you sit, and you pray. And he comes back, and he finds them asleep. And he tells them, Matthew 26, 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here, the apostle Paul also, he links together the concept of sons of light and being awake and alert. There in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 and following. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't call us to spiritual slumber. He calls us to discipline. He calls us to be in the word, in prayer, that we should look for opportunities. So awake, O sleeper. And then he also says, arise from the dead. Perhaps some of you are, are thinking here, hey, wait a minute. Doesn't Paul have the order reversed? Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and then Christ will shine on you. Well, wasn't, wasn't the Holy Spirit's work of light coming before such that the person could awaken and, and arise from the dead? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, the mention of the work of, of our God is, is already there, of course. That, that the that Christ will shine on you is speaking of something else. We'll get to that in a moment. Here we think about spiritual death. Is that when the Christian lives no differently and has the same carnal desires and goals and values as the unbeliever, then what we have is not spiritual life. That's called spiritual death. The effect of spiritual life is that you have new life in Jesus Christ. You have new loves. You have new desires. New values, new ways to spend your time, new hopes, new glories. Not glorying in yourself, but glorying in the Lord Jesus. And we're told here, and Christ will shine on you. It's not the first or the initial work of Christ, because he's certainly been there if you have a love for these things, if you have a love for the Lord. Rather, this is referring to the favor and the blessing of the Lord. You think about how having light, having the sun, you think about early spring. Imagine you go on a hike and it's cold in the morning. Burn some of these long hikes in order for you to go and come back and get back in time. You gotta get a start in the morning early. And and you think about how oh, the temperatures are, are rather low and it's dark, or, or there's the sun hasn't quite come up. And then as, as the wind blows, you're, you're rather cold. And you think about dressing in layers. That's important. You have extra clothes. But then the sun comes, that early springtime, that sun comes, and it's, it's getting higher, and the sun's shining on you. And then you have the benefit of the warmth of the sun. The wind is a little cool, but the sun warms you. And that, this is Christ shining on you. It's having the favor of God. Lord understands how difficult it is to live as lights 
in this crooked and perverse generation. And to be light in the world, it means that you will face opposition. And having God's favor, having his encouragement, having the light of his blessing. You think even of uh, Numbers chapter 6, the ironic blessing. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. This is having God's favor, his blessing, his encouragement, his Holy Spirit. For Christ to shine on you does not refer to merely a slight push, a slight a boost. Uh, that having Christ shine upon us is having his all in all. Having his righteousness and not our own. That Jesus is not just a crutch to help us through because we just need a little boost. Jesus is our entire hope of righteousness. He is our entire hope for the forgiveness of sins. The effect then of having Christ shining on you is that you will have joy and gladness. We saw that in our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 52, verse 9. Break forth, shout joyfully together. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. That the Lord is the one who brings us comfort, even in the difficulties. He understands that being in the world, and not of the world, exposing the world, living as a godly example, you will be under attack. You will be criticized. You will be treated partially. You will be treated unfairly. And how great it is to have Christ's light shining on you, having his favor, having his encouragement that comes from the Holy Spirit. Here, we acknowledge that our Lord is the one who grants us true deliverance. It's not easy to be the light. It exposes the darkness. But here we have the encouragement that Christ's light shines on you. That as you go about your day, as you go about your life, understand that there will be rejection. There will be opposition from the world. But there is the Father's favor. There is the Son who shines on you. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God.